This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with Shannon Lee Simmons. Shannon is a certified financial planner, chartered investment manager, certified life coach, and the founder of the New School of Finance in Toronto, Canada. She's the author of Worry-Free Money and Living Debt-Free, and she's just released her third book, No Regret Decisions, Making Good Choices During Difficult Times. Shannon, welcome back to the Life Speak podcast. I'm so happy to be here. So I'm just going to start with this. I'm just going to be straight up. I am a huge, huge, huge worrier about money. I worry about money all the time, all the time. <laughs> so in my mind, the roof is going to fall on at any moment. And I worry that I we won't be able to handle it. And so reading this book made me feel so much calmer about oh, all of it. And I hope that that's what you were trying to achieve, that people feel calm and not stressed. But thank you so much. I think a lot of people are going to benefit um, I think people benefit all the time from your knowledge, but this book is, is it really is like kind of a, a Bible to handling a crisis. And, uh, and so thank you. That's so kind. So happy. That's exactly what it's supposed to be. So uh, like a calmness for it in the storm. So you talk about caregiving, infertility, job loss, illness, divorce. You know, the, these are things that none of us really think about when we're planning our lives. And the book is basically, you know, you call it a decision crisis playbook. Can we really be prepared for any of these situations? Yeah, I think you can. Uh, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is that I've been doing this for 15 years now. And I get brought into these decisions in people's lives because money is a constraint of all of our lives. And that's where I come in. So whether it's a job loss or a critical illness or divorce or criticality, there's a financial aspect to every one of those major decisions. And that's how, you know, I get involved. And what I started noticing over the like years that I've been doing this is that there is a playbook. There is a, there's a system that's the same, regardless of what your personal crisis or your decision crisis is what I like to call it, because it's not always a personal crisis. It's just a crisis of major decisions you need to make. And there's kind of like a systematic way to go through it. And I think People think that that means, oh, well, if I do this, then I'll get what I want. And that's not what I'm promising. I'm promising if you do this, then no matter how it plays out, we have no control over the future, you will not have regret. You will not look back at that decision and say, I, I'm so mad at myself. You'll look back and say, it didn't work out the way I hoped, but I couldn't have done it any other way. And I'm proud of the way that I handled it. And that. I have seen over the 15 years is the major win because a the feeling of I shouldn't have, I, 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 I shouldn't have, it, that is going to eat away at your soul, like going forward. And it bleeds into all other decisions that you make going forward. So I do believe that you can systematically work your way through really tough decision-making so that you come out the other side proud of how you handled it. Now you wrote this book in a time of huge uncertainty, not only in your own life, but in all of our lives, the early days of the pandemic. Tell me what that was like. The early Awful. <laughs> I tried to quit like four times. So one of the things that I define a decision crisis around is having to make choices that have high financial stakes, high emotional stakes, and an uncertain outcome. So 
is the recipe for a decision crisis, right? Because you feel like everything you do matters and it's major high stakes and we don't really have control over what's going to happen. And so when I was writing this book, I was kind of living my own personal crisis while I was doing it. There's two parts of it now that I have some distance from it and I'm looking back. At the time, um, for anyone listening, I had a six-month-old baby and a two-year-old and we were in lockdown. I had signed the book deal the day that the schools closed. I was on this tight deadline to finish it. It was just, it was my busiest time of year. My husband worked full-time. We were really lucky that we were at least able to still work, but it was just the most chaotic and anxious time of my life, I think maybe. And uh, that's how I'm very lucky, obviously, that that's been one of my most chaotic times, but it was just so scary. And um, writing this book and like crying to my mom, crying to my agent, crying to my husband that I can't do it. I won't do it. I can't do it. I won't do it. Like I won't do this book. Like I screw the book. I was very like, who cares? Because I was trying to lower the stakes for myself because I felt like I couldn't decide my way through it. Like I, I couldn't do it. And so I had some free to give. And I was like, this is, this, it's going to be this book. And, you know, my public lecture was so kind. They just were so understanding. And they're like, do what you can. And like, I, I felt like, you know, Chandler, when he wants to quit the gym and he can't, I was like, I just let me, let me free, cut me loose. And they just wouldn't. And they were just so understanding and so kind. Um, and eventually I kept making no regret decisions where I would pick myself up and be like, no, I'm going to do this for the long run. Like long run, Shannon is going to be grateful that I did this book. Short run, Shannon is like very upset. Um, and it's kind of making sure how you get your brain into a space where you can see long run Shannon and be like, Hey, I'm going to do this for you. I hate myself. I hate my life right now, but I'm doing this for you. And so now that I'm here on the other end of it, I am so proud of myself and I have no regrets. And it came at a cost, um, of my own, like calmness and chaos and all of that. But I really am proud of myself for like pushing for doing it. And I, I think this book was therapy for myself in a way that I didn't even recognize at the time when I was writing it, I was going through all these stories of these people I know. These are all real people in this book, but in all of my books, they're real people and going through their stories and talking with them again about it. And then writing furiously at like 11 o'clock at night when I'm exhausted, I've been in tears all day. And it was like cathartic in a weird way. And I, I think I like poured my heart into this book and I don't even care if it flops. I'm just so proud of myself for doing it. I can feel that when I'm reading it. Thanks. That's like really kind and meaningful. Thank you for saying that. What happens when we make decisions in a, in a panic mode? Yeah. And so, I mean, my own example of that was trying to quit this, this book, right? Like when we're in panic mode, we can't see the panic from the trees to use a, an old can't see. It's like you're so focused on lowering the emotional or financial stakes of your life because it's so scary that you make decisions that are good for the short run with long-term, like not great impacts on your long-term self. And it's empowered from that clarity of mind to to kind of suss out, okay, what's the actual decision that I want to make for long-term me? I refer to that as your next normal. So like when something happens to you, you get diagnosed with a critical illness, you get thrown a, a job loss, your partner wants to divorce or you want to divorce your partner you're thrown into an entirely new situation that is like unexpected. So you're already thrown off your rocker. Your life feels like it's not the same as it was two weeks ago. Everything feels wild. And it's natural for us to go into like a self-preservation mode, right? And so, because when, so you're, you're panicking. 
But what happens is a lot of times when we get thrown into these situations, we are forced, whether we like it or not, to make decisions. So my client who is leaving her partner, you know, comes a point once you say it out loud and it's happening, like there comes a point when you have to have the conversation about the matrimonial home. There comes a point when you have to decide what childcare is going to look like, what spousal, like those are things that are going to happen. Like those decisions are coming for you. You can't hide from them anymore. And so um, when we make decisions without thinking them through, without taking a minute to pop out of panic mode to see, you know, the bigger picture and the hope, I think we make trade-off decisions really black and white. And it's impossible to see that we have maybe more options. And a lot of times we make angry decisions or um, decisions that we will regret later. And again, the promise of this book is no regret decisions. Not necessarily that you're going to get your way or it's going to work out exactly how you hoped. It's just that you're going to look back and no matter what happened, you'll be proud of yourself. That is the promise. And that is, that's because you took the moment to try to come out of panic mode and not make those panic-based decisions. In a crisis, you say we should be aiming to reach 60% normal. What do you mean by that? Yeah. I think that this is something I have been helping people with for years without realizing how important it was until the pandemic, myself, personally. So when a personal crisis happens or a decision crisis comes upon us in our life, which, you know, sometimes people would say like life is throwing you a lemon, often your whole world is like shifted without your permission. So if someone is all of a sudden realizing that they need to go through fertility treatment and that wasn't expected, or somebody passes away that they love, that's not expected. And it's those moments when you feel like your whole world has changed and it wasn't like because you wanted it to. It happened to you. And um, those moments feel terrifying. And so what happens when we, when our life, when every day feels different than normal, then it keeps us in panic mode because every decision feels fraught. So if you think about it, like think about how even the pandemic, which is kind of a universal thing that most people can identify with a lockdown at this point. And the first time it happened, not the fourth or the fifth, but like the first time it happened and how all of your normal routines were broken. So you, you have no normal routines in your life anymore. And so what happens is it's like you, you like, you know, how like um, Obama wore like a, the same thing every day. So he didn't have to think about it. So what happens is our decision-making ability, we, we, we use up all of our like logical brain, just trying to decide, do I make coffee or go for coffee? Do I, do I, do I walk? Do I take this? Like, where do I go? Because our routines are broken. So one of the things that we can do mindfully and consciously when we're, when our life has been turned upside down is to consciously think about some of those mundane, I'm talking about like mundane (laughs) details of your regular, of your life as you knew it before that you can bring forward into your new life on purpose with purpose to make you happy and safe in the moment, not forever, but they give you some sort of like comfort. And it's basically comfort seeking that you're doing to try to relieve the panic that's happening to you. Because part of that panic is happening. Every decision is new and nothing is routine anymore. So a lot of times I've been doing that with people and I did it with myself consciously and mindfully during that first lockdown is like thinking about, okay, what are the parts of my day-to-day life, morning, noon, night, that really just brought me pleasure that I could still do today and bring those forward and do them on purpose. And uh, it it is kind of like a a survival tactic to keep yourself calm. It's like, it's making yourself feel 60% normal so that you can reserve your brain power 
for the big decisions that are like lying ahead of you that you have to make, not necessarily about your coffee and about what you're going to do with yourself in the morning. Yeah, I mean, it was really, really small things like making sure you make yourself a really nice cup of coffee, that you don't stop doing that. Maybe it's a glass of wine in the evening. Maybe it's, you know, taking the dog for a walk at the same time as you always did, right? It's like tiny little things, but just kind of give you pleasure moments. Mundane details that you did in your previous life that you can bring forward to bring you joy. It is that you your comforts. That's all it is. And it's like, but I guess the, you know how like everyone made a lot of bread in the first lockdown? Well, a lot of people didn't do that before. That was actually like a new routine. What I'm trying to get people to do is like, what are the things you always did? And that's the creature comfort is creating habits or like bringing habits forward with you as mundane as they are that give you little bits of pleasure from your old life so that your new life doesn't feel so scary. Now, I know every panic situation is different, you know, an illness, you know, you have a case that you talk about in the book with one of your clients whose wife, um, unfortunately, you know, had Alzheimer's and he was dealing with all the repercussions of that. When we're in a complete panic mode and it doesn't have a Shannon to go to, what's a good starting point to help them manage that situation? I think the first thing to do is to recognize that you're in it. So I can speak to this personally and also on anecdotally from so many of my clients. Not realizing that you're in panic mode is actually problematic because you don't ask for help, maybe. You don't seek it out for help. You can like try to plow through decisions without even realizing that you're doing it or you're trying to hide from it. I was trying to hide from it. It came to get me eventually, but I was trying to hide from my own panic during the first little bit because I didn't want to be in panic when I wanted to be in control. And so I think the first thing that you want to do is acknowledge it. And the second thing is like, honestly, like I'm not a mental health professional, but like I have found that people who reach out and like get therapy or like get support that they need to like talk things through. And like, it really helps to support while you're going through that transition, talking to a mental health professional, if you're able to, to sort of just add one extra layer of self-care in there to like hear yourself um, say things out loud. So I think acknowledging, getting help and support when and where you need it, I think those are the first two steps no matter what. And then three, like really laying out what the options are. And I mean, the book does walk you through this, like how to make that decision tree. But if you can pull your, like if you can do those things in the book, like get yourself to 60% normal. They also talk about creating a circle of care, which is like everything about making decisions when you're in crisis is about doing things on purpose, right? So things mindfully finding a community, seeking a community that's in the exact same position as you because the people in your life that aren't going through what you're going through can support you to a degree, but they can't understand what you're going through if they're not going through it themselves, right? And so, you know, finding people who are like, for example, my client who had his wife going through earlier onset Alzheimer's, you know, his other friends can't possibly understand what that's like. So finding people who are also going through something like that, that can provide support and just, I don't know, community or like my widower. So finding people that also had lost a partner, like these are really essential relationships in those very early days, acknowledging, getting help where you need it, finding community that actually understands what you're going through and trying to spark joy with low hanging fruit, like 60% normal of your life so that you can just not live in panic mode all the time because all I really need is a spark of joy every now and then to kind of lift up and out and see the forest from the trees and be like, okay, this isn't forever. This is just for now. And I, I, I have my eye on the bigger picture. And then maybe you'll sink back down 
but you might pull your, now you know how to pull yourself back up again. You talk about micro lines and goals. So like really almost just looking ahead to the next four hours, the next four days, the next four weeks. Yep. And I think, again, this is one of those things that when I was putting this book together, I realized I've been doing this across all kinds of situations with people. And again, mostly with the finance, with the finances, right? Because that's my area of expertise, with like a side of coaching. But I think the big thing about that is that so much in a decision crisis is unknown. So like a divorce is a really good example of this. So much of the future, we can't know yet. Can't know what you're going to have to pay in support or receive in support. Can't know what child support is going to be on either side. We don't really know what the value of the matrimonial home will be when it which comes to shove and we have to put pen to paper. Like we don't know those things just yet. You can cycle around in your brain for a long time thinking about it, but we don't really know that. So what do we know and what don't we know? And then really, sometimes we can only really know how things are going to play out for the next four days, not the next four months. It's just way too you know, unpredictable. And I think it's permission to plan for four days or like, for, yeah, four hours, whatever. However long you can, whatever timeline you can kind of feel like you can predict, plan that because that's going to give you and like do it like a series of micro goals or just like, again, small things that move you, nudge you in the right direction. Nothing sweeping, nothing huge, no major shifts because if you're in panic mode, it's really nice to think I'm going to overhaul this and do this, like these big sweeping goals. But what happens is if we fail them by accident because they were just way too huge at the time when you just need a lot of self-care, then if you fail, it's it's like kicking you while you're down. So you're setting yourself up for some small wins, which I think you're like, you need. And doing it over a short period of time, more likely to succeed. Plus you don't get overwhelmed with how much is out of your control and how much is unpredictable. So it gives you a sense of control. And I think having a little bit of control, or at least the illusion of control, at a time when you feel completely out of control is really important to pull out of panic mode. And then there's pivot points. Yes. These suck, but they're also not the end of the world. And they've always been there. So time and money are two constraints that every single human has. So if we don't have enough time or like if we run out of time or we run out of money, we got to change our plans, right? Like that's a real thing. Pivot points are the places along your journey where, you know, plan A didn't work out, but you're just shifting your plan and you're kind of giving something else up to make room for plan A again. So it's like, okay, a great example of this, like on a, maybe not a personal crisis or a decision crisis level, but just like as a concept is, okay, I have a hundred dollars and this thing I want to do costs like $80. So I'm going to use the other 20 to buy uh, you know, a toy for my kid. I'm just making things up. And then all of a sudden you get to the store in that first place, that first plan that you wanted to do for $80 that actually cost 85. Like, ah, oh, okay. So then you just pivot your plan. You're like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to buy the $20 toy. I'll figure something else out and I'll only use 15 and I'll still do this first thing that I wanted to do for 85 bucks. I'll do this at a point so on a very low, low scale. But essentially you reach a constraint, like something that's out of your control, whether it's time or money, and you have to change other plans in your life to make room to keep going after this original one. So a pivot plan is still hopeful because it, it just means you have to compromise. It doesn't mean you have to stop. 
So in the, in the example I just used, imagine that the first plan actually cost $110. Like, okay, well, not only is there no toy for my child, I can't even do this anymore. This whole, the whole plan is done. And that's different than a pivot point. A pivot point means, and I can still do this, but I just got to give up something else to make room for it. So I have to either take more time or I have to give up some other goals that cost money in order to do this. And that's what a pivot point is. And everybody reaches those. But when we're in a decision crisis, we need to know where, we need to flag those spots um, sort of upfront or at the beginning. So the up you reach one, it's not scary. Because I think reaching a pivot point that you weren't expecting can send us right back into panic mode. Even though it's completely okay, it was like kind of normal, we knew that this was going to happen. If we hadn't really mapped out, um, it feels scarier than it actually is when you have to start compromising other plans in your life to make room for whatever decision you're kind of holding out for. Well, when things don't go the way we've planned them in any situation, there is a tendency to feel like we failed somehow. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's the crux of this book is that you didn't fail. If you knew that you weren't making a panic decision and you followed your, I call them deciding values, which are essentially core values of your, of who you are at the time. And there's going to be a couple that you're going to hang your hat on, right? So we have, we all have a bunch of values, things that are important to us. But when you're in a decision crisis, you need to do this. Okay. Of all my beautiful values, which one or two am I going to hang my hat on? Which one is the most important right now for my life? So give me an example. Yeah. Okay. So a great example, I'll even use an example from the book. So a woman that was going through a divorce and it was not her choice. Uh, so she really felt like she was thrown into it. And there's all these decisions to be making. And of course, she has all these values around, you know, she wants to spend time with her family. She wants to live close to work. She wants to have financial security. Um, she wants to be a, uh, like do some self-care. She wants to do all these things. But it's like, okay, when she's deciding whether or not she's going to, when whatever money she receives from the sale of the house, is she going to buy a house further out and commute? Or is she going to try to get a house where her kids can stay in their community and she can stay in her community at a financial risk. This is a decision. So it's like, so which value are we going to follow here? Are we going to follow your value around financial security? Or are we going to follow your value around your kid's happiness? Like those are, those are competing right now. So which one is more important to you right now? And how do we prioritize those different values? So, you know, through actually talking about it, there's no ideal scenario. And I think that's, People always want an ideal scenario. And often with a decision crisis, there isn't an ideal. So it's like, which compromise are you going to look back on and be like, I'm proud of that? And so in the end, we, I think we joked about it. I think I wrote this in the book, but it was like, Mike, she wants whatever situation is going to ha- help her kids thrive with like a side of financial security. So she was willing to kind of light herself on fire financially for the short run in order to keep you know her kids warm as a, as a metaphor. So like, the value around financial security is present, but it's not, number one. And I think that saying it out loud, writing it down and acknowledging that made her feel less like a failure when financially things were not as great later on. It was like, I did that on purpose. It's like, I I knew that that was going to happen because I chose to do this thing for my kids that was going to put me behind financially. But like, I chose that on purpose and I look back and I don't regret it, even though I have to work for an extra you know, eight, 10 years now, and I can't retire when I thought I was going to like, it's that kind of on purpose, prioritization of values, 
that leads to no regrets on the other side, even though things are not, even even though it was a complete compromise of one of your values. You know, when you and I spoke a year ago on this podcast, we talked a lot about, you know, you hear a lot about shame and guilt emotions and that people feel so terrible about money a lot of the time. And that's what you hear from clients a lot. And in this book, you focus on the emotion of regret. Tell me how this plays into the way that we approach decision-making during pro times. So you know what's interesting? I don't think I could have written this book seven years ago. So I've been doing this for 15 years. And I think when I started to realize that regret is so troubling is because I've watched people over 15 years go through various crises, various decision crises in their life. And I've seen them play out. And I have the length of time now to see who's still thriving, who's stuck, and why are they stuck, and what's happening. And time after time, how they handled whatever decision crisis, whatever personal crisis happened in the past, if they are not proud of the way that they handled that, aka they have regret, future them just can't move forward. It's like constantly looking back. Every decision going forward feels fraught with anxiety, shame, guilt, because they don't trust themselves to make good decisions. Because things didn't work out, they blame themselves, not the scenario around them, even though like, you know, someone like me could be like, say, it's not your fault till the cows come home. Doesn't matter because they're not proud of how they handled it or the decision that they made. Then how their life is now, anything that's quote wrong, it's a personal, they personally blame themselves. And that bleeds into every area of their life. And I've really had the time now to see that play out in real time with various people and other people. I mean, life throws us all lemons. We all go through this. And the people who go through it and you know, have used these various tools in their playbook, whether they were my client or not at the time, but like there's, they're basically the long and short of it is that they look back and even though things may have been compromised or things may be different than they originally wanted, they are not ashamed and they have no regret about how they handled it and why they chose what they chose. Like for example, like to take my client who had a divorce, like just to work an extra, you know, so many years in retirement, like that sucks. It was definitely not part of the plan. And, um, you know, financially, that was definitely a vi- like financial security is a value of hers. So it was a definite violation of that. But she chose it on purpose in service of this other value. So even though the situation on the other end of the crisis is less than ideal, she has no regret about it. So she's not going to look forward into the future and say, I'm not a capable person. I can't make good decisions. I hope life doesn't throw another lemon at me because I'll be screwed. And I think that's the, the big thing that I started to see after like 10 years of doing this is like who thrives after a crisis and who does not. And regret is the big one between the two. People come to you when they need to make huge, complex life decisions. And you talk about just, you know, situations where there's literally a hundred percent uncertainty in literal situations. I want to know how you yourself stay calm and focused when people come to you with this stuff. I think what I, what I know to be true is that it's not up to me to figure out what's going to happen. And the confidence that I have that like, even with hundred percent uncertainty in these, these big moments in someone's life, it's not up to me to decide where their pivot points are. It's not up to me to decide wh- when they stop, how they stop. It's up to them. All I am really doing is holding up a mirror and saying, here, those constraints of like time and money which is where my expertise is, you know, if this, then that, 
how do you feel about that? So it's not my own, I'm not trying to predict anything. I'm not trying to put any of my own values on anyone. And so that really absolves me of any um, sort of anxiety about the depth of, of what a human is going through in my office, right? And I can hang out in weird spaces with people. I can hold space. And I think sometimes things get dark and things are also really light sometimes too. Like I make the joke, like I'm, I'm, I'm like a Capricorn, but I'm also like a Pisces moon. And I'm like, I can sit with deep emotions comfortably. So how do I stay calm? I know that it's not up to me to solve anything for this person. I am here to like outline mostly pivot points and guardrails, making sure that they are not making panic-based decisions by just really just asking and then providing some support on ways to like come up out of panic mode if they are there. And they're going to figure it out. And I really do think that people are naturally creative, resourceful, and whole, and that sometimes you just need a little bit of like clarity, like a path to see where you're at in it. And then you decide for yourself. So I love the work that I do because there's such highs, such lows and everything in between. And a lot of it is, is yes, it's all centered around quote, money, but really it's about people. And I, it's like, I'm a, like, it's like a life planner. It's about people going through life and trying to help them make the best decisions that they absolutely can. I think it's interesting in the way that you work with clients is kindness is a big part of the way that you work and is making sure that people understand what makes them happy. And those are definitely not things that are typically connected with financial planning. So how is it that that is something that became important to you throughout your career? Yeah, I think I don't sell product. I straight up, I think that that is... So for anyone who does who just went, well, does she mean by that? Typically a financial planner or advisor, you manage someone's money. So they put it in an account and you're managing their investments or you're selling them a life insurance or some sort of insurance or your product. But essentially like I'm there to match the financial advice with the product I have to sell you. And I don't do that. So I do something called advice only financial planning or fee only. And that allows me, you pay for my time. So I'm not invested financially in how you spend your money or where you save your money. And the only way that I make more money off of you is if you tell a friend or come back. So what it allows me the freedom and the permission to do because I'm not answering and I'm also self-employed. So I don't answer to some, somebody who's like, you know, get on your numbers or whatever. And I think that that has given me the permission to have impact in a real way with people. And when you actually aren't on a sales mission to get a billable hour or uh, sell a product or sell a mutual fund or whatever, then your only value add to this person for money is to be there for them and actually provide help. And most times, of course, I financially plan for people. That is my job. But money is how we afford our life. All of these things that happen to people in their life, whether it's buying a house, starting a family, going to school, going back to school, starting a business, all of that costs money. And like, yeah, even on the other side, the crisis situations too, like critical illness, becoming a widow, getting a divorce, like fertility stuff, like all of those stuff also costs money. So life is full of beauty and grief and sadness and all of these juicy emotions. And often money is right at the, is right beside it, even though it's not the core of what's happening. And so I think for me, the kindness and the empathy piece is critical to anybody who's getting a financial done because you have to literally help this person 
move forward with a plan that they're excited about. And you're not going to have somebody be excited about a plan that doesn't reflect their values, that feels false, and that's not sustainable or even realistic for what they can and can't do. And so, so much can and can do is getting to know what a person is going through, having empathy for their situation, regardless of what it is, and then making a plan that they're excited about, which means happy and joyful and doable. And that's, so I think it's, it's a combination of that. And that's why it's not only do I love that, that's like what makes me happy, um, but it's also what keeps me on a month waiting list. What keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic when things are difficult? Me personally? <laughs> yeah. I think I'm lucky. I'm one of those people that's like, my husband always calls me a natural optimist. He's like, you just wake up happy. And I, not always, obviously I've had sad times in my life, but I try to find my way to joy. I really do every day. And so obviously whenever I have, you know, down day or down, t- down weeks or months or whatever it is that I'm going through, I'm always really trying to find the joy and spark the joy when and where I can and hold on to it like a port in the storm. Because hope is for me a combination of feeling safe and happy at the same time. So not just safe, not just happy, but like both. I'm constantly trying to find a way that I can feel like cozy and joyful. (laughs) Um, And that to me gives me hope. And when I have hope, I make better decisions because I'm thinking about it in a positive mindset versus like a negative so I think that it's like, I try to find that and whether or not that's through little things like, you know, one of my routines, my 60% normal routine, still to this day, I have two little kids, they're three and five now. It's like the bed bath routine is like very joyful, so mundane and annoying some nights, like truly, um, brushing teeth wars, blah, blah, blah. But like, who's sleeping in what bed? Are they having like all the things? But at the end of the day, it's so friggin' normal. Like it's so, no matter what's happening in my day, I'm like very present during that 45 minutes to an hour, whatever it is. And it's like, I do it almost every day. It's almost like a ritual. And so it brings me such calm joy, even though it's annoying sometimes, like the gym. <laughs> but it's like, it's like a ritual of my life. And so I think that those kinds of little rituals that bring us joy make us feel hopeful. And I also think like on a grandiose scheme, what makes me hopeful is that I talk to people every day going through all kinds of things, happy and sad. People getting married, wonderful. People buying houses, cool. Certain families, awesome. People starting businesses, great. Also the opposite. So I ride this roller coaster with people. I'm on a front row seat of people's lives playing out. And I have such hope in, this is so meta, but like humanity, I think it's really dark out there. Sometimes we're in a weird time in history. Like things are weird and scary sometimes. And yet when I talk to people one-on-one, not the aggregate what's on social media, I'm talking to fam- I'm talking to people like one-on-one. Most people are just trying to be kind and good for themselves and their family and others. And it's like, that's hopeful. And I don't know that everybody spends as much time talking to other people intimately and vulnerably as I do. So it really makes me feel hopeful because I think most people are just trying to do their best. And I really see that every day. And that gives me hope too. Your book is called No Regret Decisions, Making Good Choices During Difficult Times. It's in stores now. Shannon, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I know you're recovering from bronchitis, but I really appreciate you sharing your, your, your wisdom and your advice with, with all of us. So thank you. 
Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is lovely. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.